As Stan mentioned, uh, today we actually are concluding Beatitudes, Beatitude number eight. Obviously, our Sermon on the Mount series continues on. We are going to finish first 12 verses today. So, hallelujah. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. One commentator called this part is blessing that no one wants. Because persecution is something that we would love to avoid. I think the beatitude is transforming and powerful for us because it became a spiritual audit. As I mentioned, it is not another law or substitution of the Old Testament law now becoming a New Testament rules of uh, law that we need to obey in order to be saved. But it is actually portrait of believer, true Christian, or kingdom citizen. And this description, each one of them, is a mark of a true Christian. And the distinctiveness about this beatitude is at least six different ways. But since this is the last one, let's look at couple of points of overall. All eight Beatitudes, first of all, are opposed or opposite of the worldly values. When you look for uh, someone who is happy and blessed, we don't usually think about in worldly values. Someone who is poor in spirit, someone who is gentle and meek, but we would actually look for someone who is self-confident and strong. Someone doesn't really mourn over things, but someone is really happy-go-lucky person. But it goes on and on. It's someone who is always full and and uh, satisfied what he has, not someone who hunger and thirst with such an intensity. So every single um, attitude, be attitude, is opposed by the worldly values. Number two, following Jesus requires, therefore, as one of the commentators coined this term, transvaluation of all values. In other words, transformation of things that we value. This is really true mark of inner transformation, isn't it? The transvaluation of all values will lead us to Christian counterculture that clashes naturally with a worldly value system. John Stott eloquently points this, so I'm going to use his word. He writes, Yet in all this, the values and the standards of Jesus are in direct conflict with the commonly accepted values and its standards of the world. The world judges the rich to be blessed, not the poor, whether in the material or in the spiritual sphere. The happy-go-lucky and carefree, not those who take evil so seriously that mourn over it. The strong and brash, not the meek and gentle. The fool, not the hungry, those who mind their own business, not those who meddle in others, other men's matters and pre, uh, occupy their time and do glory like showing mercy and making peace. Those who attain their ends 
even if necessary by devious means, not the pure in heart who refuse to compromise their integrity. Those who are secure and popular and live at ease, not those who have to suffer persecution. Persecution, he summarizes in this way, is simply the clash between the two irreconcilable value systems. And this is the reason why we have this incongruent things even in the Christian community, even in church leaders' family. I still remember counseling young men uh, who's marrying a pastor's daughter. And the pastor didn't like him as a candidate for to be a, a son-in-law. The reason? Because he's preparing to go to oversee missions. And obviously, the pastor probably loves the Lord. But do you see the incongruence here when it comes to the dad actually wanted someone who is whatever the normal is, normal person who works and who makes plenty of money to make his daughter happy in a normal setting. It's a value of clash of two values in a very incongruent, awkward way. And we live in a society that it is possible the eloquent preachers can continue preaches away without transvaluation. Do we really think of Jesus as the most treasured joy in life? If so, we need to seek the values that Jesus values. We'll, we'll talk about that just a little more uh, as we are going into the text itself. But let's focus on the importance of this beatitude. This, this eighth beatitude is important because at least for six ways. Number one, it is the last beatitude, a conclusion. Uh, number two, it is the longest beatitude. Each beatitude, as we know, is one single verse, and this one has three verses. Number three, it is the only beatitude with a command. There is actually command in this beatitude, which is rejoice and be glad. Fourthly, it is the only beatitude with an explanation. So we used to draw other verses and look at the interrelationships. But this one actually, Jesus' own explanation of verse 11 and verse 12 concerning verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Fifthly, it is the only beatitude that is repeated by Jesus. The first time he would say it as a, a third person. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And then verse 11, he changed it in a very personal way, repeats the same thing. Blessed are you when you are insulted and people say all kinds of lies on, on the count of me. And Sixthly and lastly, it is the only beatitude addressed directly to the audience and reader. As I mentioned, every other verse is about blessed are the poor, the merciful, the pure in heart, the meek. And this one, blessed are you, added to that. The question that we need to ask is then, 
if this is a portrait of a true Christian, does that mean persecution is required as a part of true mark of a Christian? The short answer is yes, it is. But the problem of um, our Christianity in today's world, in the Western world, it seems like the persecution doesn't exist much at all. Of course, in Middle, Middle East, ISIS killing and beheading people, Christians, in the name of religion, of course there is China underground church. But here in America, everybody is Christian in some sense, aren't we? Or yes and no. We'll look at Jesus' word directly, but this is what true mark of Christian really would look like. As we look at what John Stott says of a two clash of two irreconcilable value systems, if we really pursue righteousness, if we really become a person, becoming a person who is in God's hand of sanctification process, our differences will be offensive in some sense to others who are very, very different. So if so, what are some reasons that we don't sense much of a persecution? Number one is a, those one of those my religion is a private matter. I say you're a secret agent. People don't really know your really Christian identity at work. You prefer not to talk about it. You prefer intentionally hide it in some sense. Then there might not be that much of a uh, persecution. In another sense, uh, you are... I mean, this is the most important thing for us is that uh, Christians become just like the non-Christians. We become like a worldly people who cannot be separated by our values, by our conduct. The word sense of righteousness is really not there. We lose saltiness. And the brightness, then it is no threat to the people who are not pursuing righteousness. Do you know that people who are just really bright and salty, namely, let's say, Mother Teresa, who lives out the kind of love Jesus talked about, and far from us, and not only geographically, he, she passed away, so in a way that she becomes a little fictitious person, and our admiration continually grows. But if she lives next door, that brings out all the things that we are not, that we are not loving, we are not compassionate enough, we are not really having the integrity that Jesus wants us to have, then it is painful. That light and saltiness is excruciatingly painful. So that's something that we need to think about. The reason why the persecution is seems to be a little bit far away from us, at the heart of it, is lack of radical countercultural differences as Christian. And by this time, you should catch the similarity of our vision. If we put it in a very simple way, our vision as a Christian church is to be transforming community, to, to be the people of God that has saltiness retained, that has a brightness of Jesus' light within us, 
that will immediately, automatically, naturally impact ourselves and our friends and our world. One more thing before we get into the text itself. Do you know much of Saul, the source of much persecution throughout history is not necessarily from secular or agnostic world. Much of the persecution came from nominal Christian culture or other religions that oppose to Christian differences. So, you know, what that means is if we really live the countercultural difference of Jesus Christ, that we will expect some kind of harassment from the nominal Christians or the church-going people as well. And throughout church history, Reformation began that way as well. So having said that, I laid the uh, foundation of what we are going. Let's look at, define, what does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? First of all, we need to know what it does not mean. It means to be persecuted, not because of our own folly, we make just very clumsy, stupid mistakes that you're not working hard enough at work and you're posting Bible verses here and there and talking about Jesus to left and right instead of paying attention to your duty. Obviously, there will be persecution. That's your own fault. <clears throat> Secondly, it is not because of fanaticism or weirdness. And that, that's kind of, um, you know, it's very common if you look at even Facebook uh, posts. And there are some fanaticism and the people are getting into the end time prophecies and, and everything is devil, everything is uh, antichrist. Or people who would... Uh, just forgot the normal way of relating to people, and there's a strange spiritualized language here and there. And obviously, this persecution is not because of those fanaticism or weirdness. And another one is this. It means to be persecuted not because of being good or noble. All the attention is on us. And then it's one of those self-conscious, self-focused, self-righteousness that's subtle. But then yet when you're persecuted, you're not being persecuted for on the count for cause of Jesus' name, the, the, the name of Christ. It means because of righteousness that we are being persecuted. And then we need to define that righteousness first as well, right? But some people think about, oh, righteousness. That means uh, according to my conscience. Okay, whatever my conscience allows, I'm going to just be true to that. In some sense, I think that person could be very moralistic or uh, very noble. But and yet that standard could be awfully subjective. And then another person will say, how about what society thinks of as a good thing? And that's not, that doesn't cut it either. The righteousness sake is we're talking about what God desires and in the, God's will is at the, and obviously in that God's will God desired justice and integrity and righteousness in every direction of our lives. But to simply put, 
there are two directions of the persecution here. That we are persecuted for obedience to God's righteous will. When we declare allegiance to what God desires and our values is not shaken and our commitment is not withered away. And the second way of looking at it is persecuted for being like Jesus, being like Christ, for Jesus' sake. And he repeats that, isn't it? Uh, for righteousness' sake and for my sake, for my name's sake. So conclusion is, in other words, being persecuted for righteousness is same as being persecuted for Christ. These are Jesus' words directly. Luke six twenty six. Jesus said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for, you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I think this nominal Christian or the people who are, and even hipster Christianity, and some, some of the inner way that the seeker-sensitive movement tweaked in a kind of little weird way is that Christians can long for the world's affirmation of who they are. They're not weird, but they're very normal, relational, very reasonable. They are savvy, artistic, and creative and then become so well-liked. That temptation is there for us as well. When you go to work, wouldn't you be want to be liked? Your Christian, Christian identity is more of a plus factor. Oh, he's a really nice guy, and she's really nice, nice, nice woman. And Jesus says, to the false prophets, people spoke well of them. Remember Jeremiah? When he preached repentance and the doom of Israel. I mean Judah. And then actually the false prophets actually were saying very patriotic, patriotic things. We have temple of God in Jerusalem that God will be our shield. It sounds so good. Have faith. Be courageous. God will not let this happen. And people are obviously well spoken of all those false prophets. On the other hand, John 15, verse 18 through 20 this time, Jesus brings directly to us. If the world hates you, know that it hated, ha, has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. What are we hearing now? In this passage, when Jesus is pointing to righteousness... Then in, in the first four is a emptying process of false righteousness, starting with our self-righteousness, arriving to hunger and thirst for true righteousness. And then the second four, five for Beatitudes, first five, I mean Beatitudes five, six, seven, eight, 
is a feeling process of God's true righteousness coming out in our mercy, showing mercy and purity in heart and peacemaking results in radical difference that clashes with the world. That persecution is inevitable. Yes, verse 11 and 12 is very helpful because it depicts what persecution looks like. So just think about the ISIS and what's happening. It seems so far away from us. But most persecution we should expect and embrace in verse 11 and, 6, 11 and 12. That includes Jesus' command how we are to respond and react to persecution itself. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. So let's be attentive to descriptions and command that Jesus actually gives. There are a few things that we need to clarify again. First of all, we are not to retaliate like an unbeliever when we are receiving any experiencing any kind of persecution. Let's remember that clearly. Secondly, we are not to harbor resentment or depression like a victim when we experience persecution. Thirdly, we are not to be in denial of our pain like a stoic. Somebody lied about you behind your back at work because of your Christian faith. It hurts. Obviously, there's a sense of betrayal. And just because of my faith, am I I experiencing it? I can't believe this. Do not spiritualize, in other words. I'm just fine. It's a blessing to me that I'm experiencing persecution. That's different from rejoicing and being glad. That's called denial, right? And fourthly, importantly also, we are not to enjoy it like a masochist. Pain and suffering is not our joy. It's a cost to true discipleship. Then how are we to respond? We are to rejoice and be glad. And, and this is kind of a, the uh, countercultural thing as well. One would typically expect, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Therefore, the command is endure. Just hang in there. Persevere. Then someday I'll bring joy to you. In the midst of your being persecuted, the command is rejoice and be glad. And this is actually the unlocks, the gateway of true joy and the wealth of well of joy of the Lord. You don't believe me? You just pay attention to people who are going through persecution and they're rejoicing. And there's a mark. Even I, I encounter several people who, who are underground church uh, in China. I sense type of joy that I don't see usually in America. And they're persecuted. And you will, you will uh, encounter some missionaries who cannot even talk about where they are where they, uh, doing ministry in the Middle East somewhere. 
and that those who are really practicing this command, there is a deeper joy, supernatural joy. The question is why? So let's talk about why. At least three reasons. Number one, persecution is a proof that we belong to Christ. We we get actually validation mark of who we are, our identity, identity. And verse twelve actually says that for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was persecuted by Nazi Germany. He himself was a German and a Christian, a young pastor, who actually stood up for the name of Jesus, the righteousness sake. And he was trying to help the Jews to escape. And he even planned a systematic way to bring down Nazi Germany. It's controversial things. Do we have to uh, go against the, their, our own government? But besides that controversy, the clear thing is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as a young man who is in prison, wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. In it, he writes, Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. If we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. But if we lose our lives in his service and carry our, uh, carry our cross, We shall find our lives again in the fellowship of the cross with Christ. The opposite of discipleship is to be ashamed of Christ and his cross and all the offense which the cross brings in its train. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering of Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffering. In fact, It is a joy and token of His grace. Isn't that wonderful? This is the same spirit we have read in Scripture, Acts 4, when Simon, Peter, and other disciples are taken to the the prison and by the Sanhedrin, the religious and city council, Congress, basically, forbid them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they have spoken, and they were being persecuted, put it in the prison. When they were experiencing that, and coming out of that persecution, their testimony is this. We are so honored to be dishonored for the name of Christ. They took it as a joy and token of grace and rejoiced that actually we are equated with our Lord Jesus. And we are in the suffering of fellowship of suffering of Christ. And it is honored to be dishonored for the name of Jesus. Secondly, why is it joy and rejoicing really makes rejoice and be glad make sense as a command as we respond to persecution? Because heaven is promised for the persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of God. This is a Jesus mark. Like two ends of bookend. Uh, beatitude number one blessed are those blessed are the poor in spirit for there is the kingdom of God 
And then beatitude number eight, for the persecuted, for theirs the kingdom of God. And obviously, the bookend uh, is a way to, to express inclusio, anything that is in between, you know, all the same. So hence the reason why it is the portrait of a true Christian, true kingdom person. Because everyone belongs to heaven. But especially for this beatitude, Jesus marked on it. Thirdly, our reward is great in heaven. That's the way actually what waits for me there and not only where I'm going. For your reward is great in heaven, Jesus uh, clarified. But we need to make sure that we understand the transvaluation again. The reward is not referring to merit or of grace. The reward is not worldly, but heavenly. The prophetic prosperity gospel is not only wrong, but very, very harmful in light of this uh, true Christianity perspective. And the reward is great enough to equalize any severe persecution and suffering for Christ. This is why we don't have to pay back to those people who are just becomes a thorny on our side and just continually hates us in some sense, our Christian identity or Christian faith. When you look at the Beatitude here, um, we want to continually live out and embrace each beatitude, including this one. So as I mentioned, because it's a kind of, in sort of way, uh, uh, the four on top is repeated by the four on the bottom, interaction, interrelationship is beatitude number four is actually affecting beatitude number eight. The question is, why are true Christians experiencing persecution? Or the, maybe the uh, question that we should ask is, uh, phrase it this way. Why are true Christians willing to follow and pursue righteousness at the expense of suffering and persecution? Because number four answers, because that with intensity, desperate heart, true Christians hunger and thirst for righteousness. What comes to our mind immediately? Do I hunger and thirst with that intensity? If that longing for hunger and longing for righteousness is not intense enough, when the pressure comes, when the harassment comes, when the lies and slander comes, we will quit pursuing righteousness. So even as a church, I think we should, we ought to really pay attention to the radical difference that Jesus is calling us to value. So about three different ways when you think about um, embracing beatitude number eight. The first one is this. Uh, In light of that, let's read that, the whole passage uh, again, just as a conclusion. Verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Number one thing that we ought to do is deepen our thirst and hunger for righteousness. 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But as for you, O man of God, sorry about that misspelling, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So when we actually pursue that, we begin to see value of righteousness and godly life at any cost. But we have to deepen our thirst and hunger first. And then beatitude goes again, our sanctification, God's making us a righteous person. In this season, what are some things that you need to empty? Maybe too many things, the worldly desires that filled your heart already. You won't be thirsty, hungry now. Maybe you are a very moral person and you are relatively maintained a lot of good things and you're well respected and there's a subtlety of self-righteousness in your eyes you are really better than others and then you won't be thirsty for true righteousness when we begin to really see the depravity of our soul of our heart that we become desperate enough to not only look to God, but mourn over, grieve over our sin, our impotence, spiritual impotence before God. We surrender our stiff-necked eye to God. And then all of a sudden, whatever God offers, the righteousness is so good to us. Number two, Pursue a life of righteousness wholeheartedly. The key word is wholeheartedly. The pure purity in heart is single-mindedness in one word. Right. Second Timothy three twelve describes why. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be. Persecuted. Even in Orange County? Yes. But we are so apt to compromise integrity and our compassion for others. We're so busy about covering ourselves in some sense rather than wholeheartedly pursuing what God desires in our lives. And finally, number three, be sure to rejoice and be glad when you face persecution because of Christ and righteousness. First Peter four thirteen and 14 reiterates what Jesus himself said. Peter writes, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And throughout church history, the true Christians took suffering and persecution with glad and joyous heart. And because of their obedience, we experienced the richness of their fruit. One person that comes to my mind is Martin Luther. 
1517, Roman Catholic Church basically was continually declining in moral uh, standard of what God desires. And they have decided to do another capital campaign and under another rounds of indulgence. Indulgence is basically uh, you could monetarily pay for the reducement of your sins so that it's not it doesn't cancel out. But when you in Catholic theology people go to purgatory per se, that the purgatory punishment is shortened because of payment of that. Obviously, this is not biblical at all. And Martin Luther, reading through Book of Romans and reading that word, just the righteous will shall live by faith. Justification, justification by faith became so clear to him. So this young priest, theologian, and wrote 95 pieces and published it. All the things that he disagreed in the name of God's word. And obviously, the pressure came from Pope and all the uh, systematic religious system of the day. And it became 1518. There's an integration. Final threat. And they were saying to Martin Luther, all these words, did you write it? Yes, I did. Will you recant everything you wrote as wrong and repent? And then Martin Luther said, would you give me one day? I need one day. And then at first you think that maybe Martin Luther finally got scared or fear of people who was going to persecute him. No, his heart was this. Can it be true that all these theologians, all these people disagree with me and I am the only one who sees the scripture this way. And after having struggled with that with God, the next day the time came, do you have your answer now? Yes. My answer is, I cannot and must not recant unless you prove me wrong through scripture. Show me I'm wrong through scripture, otherwise I will never be able to recant. And obviously, the political, uh, religious power uh, overtook him. I mean, the, 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 the where he was in systems, was, he was officially excommunicated by the church. There was a beginning of reformation the Protestant came out of that, along with the Calvin and others' Reformation movement. So think about that. Righteousness' sake is not so much of a political agenda at all. It's a simple obedience to what God desires and what God reveals in His Word. So when you think about, oh, I'm, I'm not prophet, I'm not a pastor... I'm not a missionary. I cannot lead the movement. No, the passage is not talking about that. passage is talking about, will you follow God's will wholeheartedly? Will you desire it with hunger and thirst? And even at the ex expense of persecution, will you never stop pursuing it? That's the mark. And I pray that our church will become <coughs> will retain the saltiness, the countercultural values 
will be inevitably clear. Not because of our falliness, folly, not because of our weirdness, not because of any unnecessary fanaticism, but because of our love for God and His Word. And our wholehearted obedience to God's will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. And thank you that in spite of the fact that it is not easy to receive it, we see your wisdom in it. And we say, yes, Lord. And take us and use us for your glory. And as we pursue righteousness and for Christ's namesake, would you make us to be make us be ready to be glad and to rejoice in whatever the cost might be coming at in our pursuit of righteousness. I pray specifically uh, brothers and sisters who are uh, in the midst of secular work, in the midst of a nominal Christian neighborhood, the without judgmental attitude, with such a humility and meekness. And Father, keep them yours and separate them from this world. And may the values of counterculture that Jesus, that you lived out, be evident in every single one of us. And we thank you for your word. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.